Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and drug use. We advise caution for children under the age of 13. Picture a queen. Is she sitting on a throne, scepter in hand, crown on head? Well, that's not the kind of monarch this story's about. The queen I'm talking about wasn't as glamorous as a true royal, but she ruled Sydney with just as much power as any head of state. With glimmering rings on each finger and battle scars across her face, Tilly Devine was infamous in Sydney's inner city suburbs, where her brothels played host to the most inviting of women. A girl for every taste. Her business-savvy and ruthless approach to the underworld made Tilly exceptionally wealthy, even before she was 30. But of course, she didn't start out that way. Unlike actual royalty, Tilly was born in a slum and grew up with nothing. But she found her throne eventually and dug her claws in tight to keep it. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This is episode two of Sex, Drugs, and Slygrog, Sydney's Razor Wars. Last week, we met Kate Lee, who built an empire on Slygrog, catering to the city's thirsty locals when the government restricted the sale of alcohol. Today, we'll learn about Tilly Devine, an upstart working girl who arrived in Australia with dreams of surrounding herself with only the finest things in life. Just like Kate, she rose to the top of her chosen field, bringing the two rivals into dangerous proximity with one another. We'll start Tilly's story in just a moment. Stay with us. Though her story ends in Sydney, Tilly Devine's life began in London in 1900. Her parents christened her Matilda Mary Twiss, but everyone just called her Tilly. Her neighbors in Camberwell probably didn't keep up with such formal names anyhow. It was a rough part of town to grow up in. Still, it wasn't all bleak. Tilly hated school and preferred to spend her days wandering the streets of her neighborhood, enjoying the Camberwell Baths and Leisure Center, as well as the South Peckham Art Gallery. Now, you might expect that places like that would discourage unaccompanied children from visiting, especially ones without any money to spend or donate. But it was actually the opposite. Poorer children like Tilly were welcomed to the museum. The staff were expected to treat the little ones well, explain the art to them, and invite them to return. But that wasn't the only art that Tilly learned to appreciate as a young girl. She also loved to sneak into the dance halls and vaudeville theaters in the area to gaze at the glittery costumes. For a young child, no matter how much money their family does or doesn't have, there's little more exciting than a glitzy outfit. And even as she got older, it seems Tilly never got over her early exposure to the glamorous women of the stage. She wanted to be just like them. Even if she couldn't perform like them, she sure as hell would live like a star one day. But for now, things were decidedly less highbrow. 
After she left school at age 12, Tilly went to work at nearby factories. And I mean work, six 12-hour days every week. But for a girl like Tilly, who had stars in her eyes, a factory job just didn't cut the mustard. There was no way that was ever gonna get her close to the life she wanted. Before I continue with Tilly's psychology, I want you to keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we've done a lot of research for this story. It's tempting to think that a childhood spent in relative poverty would have made Tilly materialistic from a very young age. However, research by Lan Nguyen Chaplin, Ronald Paul Hill, and Deborah Roder John suggests that children from poor families aren't any more materialistic than kids from affluent families. But when they reach adolescence, those kids who grew up poor do exhibit stronger materialism than wealthier children their age. That might be why we see a switch in Tilly once she left childhood behind. As she got older, she may have felt a stronger pull to collect finer things than she'd owned before, but she knew she'd never be able to do that working in a factory. At some stage in her teens, she made the switch to sex work, which paid much better than her old job. Being possessed of natural good looks and a pretty well-developed figure for her age, it just made sense to her. With her new career decided, Tilly took to the streets. Specifically, she made the Strand in London's West End her turf, and she earned a reputation pretty quickly. Not all of it good. Sure, people knew her as a bit of a flirt, but more people remembered her temper, her foul mouth, and her fighting ability. She really didn't need much encouragement to throw hands, or boots, or nails. Whatever she thought might do the most damage, really. Still, despite her somewhat rough edges, Tilly likely did quite well for herself as a working girl. At a time when the average income was two to three pounds per week, women in her line of work could bring home 15 to 20. All throughout the years of World War I, the teenager strutted the London streets, catching the eyes of men who looked at her. She'd draw them in with a coy wink, butter them up, and then invite them to pay for the pleasure of her company. That's probably how she met an Australian soldier, James Edward Joseph Devine, in 1916. The 24-year-old was stationed in Andover during the war, and it might have been his stature that drew Tilly to him. Big Jim was tall and worked as a sheep shearer back home, which probably gave him a rugged, appealing shape. His personality was less immediately attractive. Even aside from his criminal history, he was sullen and dour, a contrast to Tilly's vivacious nature. They were oil and water in that regard, but you know, opposites attract and all that. Tilly fell for the Aussie serviceman who told her stories about owning a kangaroo farm. It was the kind of bluster many Aussies feed to gullible foreigners, but she ate it up. As for Jim, he might have been drawn to Tilly's earnings more than anything else. By all accounts, he was a lazy sort of guy who had only a passing acquaintance with the concept of honesty. But one thing he wasn't was jealous. He was only too happy for Tilly to keep up her day job while the two of them got to know each other. He even facilitated her career, offering protection whenever the need arose. I wouldn't say he was her pimp, but he certainly had the makings of one. So despite their glaring differences, Tilly and Jim got off to a fine start. They both loved to drink about as much as they enjoyed gambling. 
but one usually begat the other. And when they got drunk, the fights could be vicious. I'm talking nasty blows from each side. But Jim was often the one who ended things with a final punch. As dysfunctional and violent as the relationship was, the pair married in August of 1917. The church was a modest building in Camberwell, and the marriage certificate said the blushing bride was 21. She was, in fact, 16, basically still a child. And yet she wasn't the youngest member of the family for long. The newlyweds welcomed two children in quick succession, a daughter who died during childbirth and a son who they named Frederick. Through it all, Tilly kept working, likely at her husband's insistence. Though we can't discount her own strong desire for a better life, married or not, she knew that the surest way to a more glamorous world was through her own hard work. So she persevered, even through several arrests for a range of offenses. Obviously, she was hauled in on charges of prostitution, but she also ran into trouble for things like theft and assault. But you know what they say, the good times never last. When the war ended, Jim was shipped back to Australia with the rest of his countrymen, forcing Tilly to make some big decisions. Would she follow her husband, leaving behind the only home she'd ever known? Could she survive life in a country that was once a penal colony? Wait, why are we agonizing over this? We all know she ends up in Sydney, right? So yes, Tilly followed her husband to Australia. However, at her mother's insistence, she left her young son behind. In early December 1919, about a year after Jim had left, the 19-year-old set sail on a war bride ship bound for Sydney. The voyage lasted six long weeks, but on January 13, 1920, Tilly arrived at Circular Quay and set foot on Australian soil. She didn't know it at the time, but she was going to rule this city someday. Up next, Tilly rolls up her stockings and gets to work. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Now on with the story. Having followed her husband back to Australia, 19-year-old Tilly Devine got to work, making Sydney her home. 
She and Jim rented a flat in Paddington, a suburb in the city's heart. But there wasn't much time for seeing the sights. Tilly was too busy getting to know the locals in a biblical sense. Before she arrived, she and Jim had agreed that she would continue her career as a sex worker. And luckily for her, it was the beginning of the 1920s. The war was over and everyone was in the mood for a good time. That meant partying, drinking, doing drugs, and having plenty of sex, even if they had to pay for it. In other words, Tilly was set to make a killing. But unlike at the start of her career, she had a firm hand to guide her, while he'd only helped out here and there in London, now that they were on his turf, Jim stepped in to officially act as his wife's pimp. Though he didn't leave her as the sole breadwinner, he brought in his share of income from his own illicit activities. But Tilly was the one bringing in the real money. After years on the job, she had a knack for charming people in just the right way. Plus, her creamy complexion and golden hair were certainly eye-catching, even amongst Sydney's large community of sex workers. Anyone who wanted to enjoy her company had to fork over at least 10 shillings for the honor, and those who tried to stiff her had to answer to Big Jim, which probably wasn't much fun. Of course, they likely also had to deal with Tilly herself, who never seemed to grow out of her fondness for cursing or for delivering swift, painful kicks to anyone who crossed her, or to the people who just annoyed her, really. She wasn't blessed with a particularly long fuse, our Tilly. Nor did she have much time for trivial things, like societal norms. For instance, she point-blank refused to drink in ladies' lounges, which were a staple of local pubs. These rooms were a sort of haven for women who wanted a drink, but were too genteel to do so with men around. Tilly scoffed at the very concept. Whether this was because she preferred the company of men, disliked spending time with quote-unquote ladies, or it was just a one-fingered salute to the patriarchy is unclear. What I can tell you, though, is that Tilly's uproarious nature and criminalized profession landed her in plenty of trouble with the law. During her first five years in Sydney, she was arrested no fewer than 79 times, for a pick-and-mix bag of charges, obscene language, fighting, selling sex, offensive behavior. But this wide range of offenses didn't always land her behind bars. Back then, some criminals were given the option of paying a fine instead of cooling their heels in the local jail. Most of the time, Tilly opted to just shell out the cash so she could get back to work sooner. But occasionally, she was sent to Long Bay Jail for days, weeks, or months at a time. While inside, she earned the nickname Pretty Tilly, which certainly matched her looks for a time. Fighting might have been her go-to solution to all matter of problems, but it didn't do her complexion any favors. By the beginning of 1925, she had several scars on her face, as well as more on her chest all areas she needed to attract customers. So it was definitely a good thing that Tilly was surprisingly great at saving money. Even though Jim loved to spend her earnings on sly grog, drugs, and gambling, Tilly managed to squirrel plenty away. But no matter how much money Tilly saved, she couldn't always buy her way out of problems. Now, unfortunately, there aren't many details available about this next part, but I wish there was because I bet it was a great story and it eerily foreshadowed things to come down the line. But, c'est la vie. 
Anyway, in February of 1925, Tilly was sentenced to two years in Long Bay Jail. Why? Because she slashed a man with a razor while in a barber shop. Maybe the man said something rude to her. Perhaps he turned down her services. Then again, he could have just looked at her funny. Whatever the case, Tilly was sent to prison for her longest stay yet. And Jim wasn't far behind. Just a few months later, he was sentenced to 18 months behind bars for living on the earnings of a sex worker. Now, this is a pretty important development in this story, so I want to take a second to dig into it a bit more. In the last episode, I mentioned that Kate Lee and Tilly Devine rose to power thanks to three specific laws that enabled their empires. The first one was the law that made serving alcohol after 6 p.m. illegal, which gave rise to sly grog shops around Sydney and made Kate a very wealthy, powerful woman. The law that landed Big Jim in prison was an older one and a little bit strange. In 1908, the Police Offenses Amendment Act made prostitution illegal for the first time in New South Wales. Crucially, it also made it illegal for a man to profit off the earnings of a sex worker. In other words, men couldn't legally act as pimps or brothel owners. However, and here's the part that's going to make Tilly very rich, the law said nothing about women profiting off the earnings of sex work. It was an odd loophole, but a loophole nonetheless. Now, exactly why the law specified that men weren't allowed to profit from sex work earnings isn't totally clear, but we can hazard a guess. It's possible that male legislators assumed that a woman wouldn't even consider the opportunity to exploit another sex worker. Again, it's hard to be sure about this, but there's some compelling science that could support this idea. A study published in 2016 looked at the way men and women view their peers in the classroom. When asked to estimate whether their classmates had a strong understanding of the material, women tended to give other women a small boost in their estimation. However, men were much more confident in the comprehension of other men. In fact, students who identified as male gave other male-identifying classmates a boost 19 times larger than women gave to themselves. Additionally, the study looked at how outspoken students were in the classroom. On the whole, the male students were more outspoken, which might account for why the cohort tended to inflate their numbers. However, female students who were just as outspoken and academically successful as the male counterparts were overlooked. We could certainly talk about how this study is or isn't reflected in society at large, but instead, I want to talk about how it helps us understand Tilly's society. If attitudes by both men and women were similar then to what they were in this 2016 study, it might suggest that male lawmakers simply underestimated the intelligence and determination of women in general. Perhaps Tilly recognized that herself. Maybe, as she lay on her prison cot, pretty Tilly started taking stock of her life. Sure, she had a tidy little nest egg tucked away, but she couldn't keep working the streets forever. Aside from anything else, she wasn't getting any younger, unlike her competition. It felt like there were more girls on the street every day. Perhaps with all that in mind, Tilly decided her next move. She was going to turn her life around. No more street corners for her. She was going to transition into management. 
As soon as she was out of jail, she was going to start her life as a madam. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what she did. When she got out, probably sometime around 1927, Tilly gathered up her savings and bought a rundown cottage in the suburb of Woolloomooloo. Now, back then, Woolloomooloo was colloquially known as Woolloomooleethal and Woolloomooloo'd, likely for its crime rates and the number of sex workers who plied their trade there. Local police officers filled their lockup with sex workers most nights, or else with women too drunk to walk. Those women were literally carted to the station in wheelbarrows. In other words, it was the perfect spot for an aspiring madam like Tilly to get her start. So with the rest of her money, she furnished her cottage with plenty of beds and decor that gave the place an exotic vibe. And hey, presto, instant brothel. When she was done, Tilly walked carefully through the building, running an appraising eye over her handiwork. Not bad, she thought, not bad at all. Now it was time to start making real money. Coming up, Tilly Devine becomes Sydney's newest vice queen. Now let's continue the story. As Sydney drew closer to the pointy end of the 1920s, longtime sex worker Tilly Devine opened her first brothel in Woolloomooloo. With the place appropriately furnished, she set out to fill up the beds with women who'd bring Johns and their wallets into the establishment. And she wasn't picky about the girls she invited to join the enterprise. There were seasoned pros, struggling housewives, and youngsters drawn to the glitz and glam of the city, as well as women who'd grown up in the inner city like Tilly and knew sex work was a better paycheck than factory work. All of them were welcome at her establishment. She wasn't going to turn down anyone willing to pay. As for that payment, it was a fairly simple breakdown. Tilly's girls paid her a percentage of their earnings each day, anywhere up to 50%. And for women who weren't permanent fixtures, freelancing was allowed in the cottage for a fee of two pounds per shift. It could be a steep price to pay, but it made good sense. Tilly's brothel got girls off the streets and gave them a safe place to conduct their business, and a fairly comfortable one, too. Stay loyal to Tilly, and you saw her caring, indulgent side. She fed you, gave you a place to sleep, looked after your healthcare expenses, and made sure there was plenty of security on the job. But cheat on Tilly with someone else, try to hide any of your earnings from her, and her retribution was swift and unyielding. You'd be dismissed, and before she kicked you out of the house, she'd probably give you a good beating, too. There was one more downside to finding shelter under Tilly's wing, and it was a far more insidious problem. Big Jim often visited the brothel, but he wasn't there to sample the merchandise. He was there to peddle his own wares. Lumbering about the cottage, he'd sidle up to the girls and offer them a taste of his finest cocaine. Snow, they called it in Sydney at the time, and it was the party drug of choice. By 1927, two people pulled the strings in the city's cocaine trade, Jim Devine and Kate Lee. So it's safe to say Jim was pretty good at selling the stuff. It was only too easy for him to convince the women that a little coke would make their work easier. 
make the time fly by that much faster. And as they bent their heads for that first bump, he knew he had them on the hook. But Jim wasn't just trying to move his coke. Selling to his wife's employees was a twisted strategic move. You see, once the women had a taste for the stuff, it was a short slide to full-blown addiction. As a perverse bonus, addicted sex workers were more likely to request their payments from Tilly in snow instead of cash. And that suited her just fine. Her family connection meant she likely profited from the exchange. That said, it's not like the Divines were revolutionizing the industry. According to author Larry Ryder, around 75% of Sydney's sex workers were addicted to cocaine during the 1920s. So the couple's tactics were certainly ruthless, but everyone was doing it. And it worked like a dream. According to researchers from England's South Bank University, drug dependence is often used by pimps as a way of forcing sex workers' obedience. The 2000 study, For Love or Money, Pimps and the Management of Sex Work, pointed out that physical coercion used to be the most common way to keep sex workers under a pimp's thumb. But over time, drugs became a more attractive option, leading to a rise of pimps who are also drug dealers. Interestingly, this suggests that Tilly and Joe Devine were ahead of their time. Or put another way, perhaps Sydney's sex work industry was, and it benefited one group of people the most, those at the top. It didn't take long for the money to start rolling in, more than Tilly could ever have made by herself, and she barely had to do a thing. It would have been easy for the new madam to take a break and count her cash, but that just wasn't her style. With her bank account swelling, Tilly set out to open another brothel. She bought a second place in Woolloomooloo and got it up and running in much the same way as the first. Next came a place in Darlinghurst, and by that stage, the money was pouring in faster than Tilly could count it, so it only made sense to keep at pace. After just a few years, she owned 18 brothels around Sydney, and here's how a typical one might look. Tilly would sublet the basement, ground floor, and upstairs bedrooms to her girls as private spaces for them to conduct their business. Fairly standard stuff. But here's the clever little twist. Tilly saved at least one room for a regular tenant. If she was ever cornered by the law, she could claim that she and the sex workers were all landladies for this one person. Nothing untoward going on here, officer. Just a group of women living together for the health of their pocketbooks. Never mind the steel-reinforced windows at street level, the beefed-up security could easily be explained away as the precautions of defenseless women trying to stay safe in Sydney's rougher neighborhoods. But really, they were there to stop people forcing their way in. Angry Johns who thought they'd been cheated, or rivals looking to cause havoc. And of course, Tilly insisted that there be at least one loaded gun in each of her establishments, just in case. But much like Kate Lee, Tilly was capable of taking care of herself. She might have been off the streets, but she was still more than happy to get into a scrap. Now, Tilly had some 204 criminal convictions throughout her life, so listing all of them would be a bit OTT. But suffice to say that she was arrested for fighting. A lot. She'd assault other criminals, police officers, fish sellers. 
The offense didn't need to be big, just about anything would do. Once, Tilly sent one of her hired goons to pick up some groceries for her. When he returned with meat she thought was rancid, she saw red. She marched down to the butcher's shop herself and demanded a refund of her three shillings. But the butcher refused her, which, if he'd realized who he was dealing with, he might not have done. Tilly wasn't one to forgive any kind of slight against her, and this one felt particularly egregious. So she seized a knife from the butcher's counter and threw it at him. The incident earned her a charge for assault with a deadly weapon, but for whatever reason, she never went to trial for the matter. That certainly wasn't the case with all of the charges against her, and Tilly definitely saw the inside of a jail cell more than a few times. But that wasn't anything new to her, and with the kind of money that she was making, it was a small price to pay. That money was collected at a row house Tilly owned in Darlinghurst. That's where she'd meet her girls at the end of each night, with layers of security protecting them from prying eyes. They'd each use a hidden key to enter the row house through a back door that closed and locked behind them. Then there was another door, manned by a lookout, who'd let them into the main part of the house. This was no upstart enterprise. Tilly was running a tight ship, and her attention to detail certainly paid off. Having spent most of her youth getting her education on London streets, and then her first few years in Australia learning the ins and outs of the underworld, Tilly had become an incredibly savvy businesswoman when it came to crime. And it allowed her to finally live the flashy lifestyle she'd coveted. You or I might call Tilly's style gaudy, but she probably thought of herself as impossibly glamorous. With multiple rings on each finger, and her hair elaborately permed at least once every week, she felt just like the showgirls she'd seen in the dance halls and on the vaudeville stages back in London. She wasn't even 30 yet, but Tilly had the kind of wealth she'd only dreamed of as a little girl, which meant she could afford to splash out a little. So she and Jim started hunting for a place of their very own. But they weren't content to stay in the rougher inner city. That wouldn't do at all. Instead, they headed for the middle-class suburb of Maroubra, where they bought a red brick bungalow for around 1,600 pounds. Unlike her brothels, which were full of cheap, faux-exotic paraphernalia, Tilly's home reflected her over-the-top, lavish taste. The furniture was expensive, the walls were hung with paintings of the Australian landscape, and the whole look was completed with a glittering chandelier and grand piano. To match her new middle-class home, Tilly didn't swear anywhere near as much in Maroubra as she did when she was on the job, but she definitely still made an impression on her new neighbors. Before the Divines moved in, the beachside community was fairly quiet, but that all changed quickly enough. Tilly loved to throw a party, any excuse would do. Birthdays, obviously, but whenever she got out of jail, that'd be a party. If she needed to fundraise for someone's bail, well, what better excuse to kick up your heels? Her nouveau riche events were raucous, booze-filled affairs. She liked to bring in some of her girls to add a touch of glamour to the thing, and she loved entertaining her guests by singing songs she remembered hearing on the London stage. Her voice wasn't great, but no one would dare complain about that. 
because attending one of Tilly's parties came with a certain risk of being shot or stabbed. And a considerable amount of that danger came from the hostess with the mostess. At one party in particular, Tilly was being a little bit flirty with a man who'd had a drink or two. It was harmless fun, especially when you consider the criming that people usually did at her shindigs. This was nothing. But when the tipsy flirt devolved into a handsy lout, Tilly took issue. Let a man grope her in her own home? Not on your life, son. She seized a pair of scissors and jammed them into his cheek. Then, as the man fled from the party, blood streaming down his neck, Tilly gave chase, kicking him and screaming some of her favorite insults. After things had calmed down, Tilly returned to the party and was heard to remark, there's only one way to deal with blokes who go the grope. Of course, Tilly's rise to power hadn't happened in a vacuum. Sydney's organized crime had been growing rapidly throughout the 1920s, and the city's inner suburbs were eventually dominated by sly grog, illegal gambling, sex work, and rampant blackmail. It was something of a Wild West that only got more and more out of hand. When the powers that be passed laws to try and get the situation under control, things just went further underground, making them even harder to police. Some of that legislation had consequences that no one could have ever seen coming. And here's where we're getting into the third and final law that set the stage for all-out war in Sydney's underworld. In 1927, lawmakers passed the Pistol License Act, which meant that anyone found carrying an unlicensed firearm automatically went to jail. It was meant to curb criminal violence in New South Wales, but it pretty much did the opposite. Just days after the law came into effect, a brawl broke out at a Slygrog pub. One of the men involved pulled out a shaving razor that he had in his pocket and started slashing. Well, news of that nasty incident made the papers, and it gave the local criminal element inspiration. There were certainly fewer guns after the Pistol License Act, but they were all swapped out for sharpened cutthroat razors instead. Before long, one Sydney crime boss, Norman Brune, decided he'd make the weapon his own personal trademark. He insisted that members of his gang carry razors with them at all times. It wasn't a hard order to follow. Shaving tackle only cost a few pence and could be easily tucked into a pocket for quick access. And so the first of Sydney's razor gangs was born. But it wasn't the only one for long. You see, Brune wasn't a top dog in Sydney's underworld. He just wanted to be. At that stage, at least one of those thrones was occupied by Tilly Devine, and she wasn't going to let a would-be kingpin muscle in on her turf. No, Sydney's most powerful madam was going to get a razor gang of her own. So too was Katie Lee, the slygrog queen of the city, and as their respective forces armed themselves with blades, it was easy to see there was a war brewing. And it was going to be bloodier than anyone imagined. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the final part of this series. 
Now that we've met our two powerful queenpins, the stage is set for one of the fiercest rivalries Sydney has ever seen. For more information on Kate Lee, we found Underbelly, Razor, Tilly Divine, Kate Lee and the Razor Gangs by Larry Ryder, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 